So Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciated Mike's Bible reading today. Thanks, brother. Good to see you all again this morning. My name's Gavin, and I am the pastor of Gregory Hills Anglican Church, which is uh, chucking you away over there. And Dan's preaching the sermon over there that he preached here last week. 
which is fantastic. I couldn't bring myself to wear a Parramatta Eels jersey and preach this passage at the same time. So I took it off. Um, but I'll put it back on for morning tea, I promise. Uh, my team's the Tigers, and I lost a bet to Matt. And uh, fair's fair. This is the punishment. Um, oh, Revelation 16, I think, has to be the front runner in the Bible for the, just the darkest and most terrifying part of Scripture. And Michael served us really well in the way he read it really well uh, just then. I've been racking my brain all week as to how to preach it in such a way that we feel the heaviness of it as we ought uh, and as we should without actually being discouraged um, as we shouldn't in Christ. Um, I've decided to tell two stories to start. Um, The first is a really corny joke to try and balance the mood a little bit of the passage. And the second story is is true and fairly horrific story. So I'm going to tell the joke to give you a few minutes to kind of settle into the sermon. Uh, And please forgive the stark contrast with the story that follows. But I think both stories will be helpful to help us get our head around this passage and to feel uh, this passage. Um, Yeah, that's my prayer. I'm going to pray that now. So please join me. Uh, Loving Father and Almighty God, um, it's a loving person who warns someone uh, of danger, no matter matter how heavy the warning is. Um, Revelation 16, Lord, is a really heavy warning. Uh, It's a true warning of what is to come. And we pray that you help us by your Holy Spirit to heed this warning for for ourselves, uh, to heed this warning for our families, to heed this warning for everyone we know, our neighbours and our extended families and our friends and sporting colleagues and work colleagues. and May we heed this for their sake and um, really take it to heart and feel an urgency to evangelism off the back of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to tell a joke. It's a joke that makes fun of the Irish. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore. I don't know if you're allowed to do that anymore. I spoke to Peter Graham about it in the office. He said it should be okay. So, um, And he's not here. <laughs> so it's okay. So here goes. Um, so I won't tell an Irish joke. I'll tell a joke uh, about Paddy and Seamus, who were t- two famous nondescript cultural background people living in Ireland with Irish accents who happened to be farmers. And uh, both Paddy and Seamus had a pet pig. Um, they loved their pigs, but Seamus's pig was particularly mischievous. And uh, one day, Seamus's pig broke through the fence uh, between Paddy and Seamus's, the fence that uh, bounded their yards, uh, broke into play uh, with Paddy's pig. Paddy came out in the early, early in the morning and he was greatly dismayed. And he called out, Seamus, get out here! And Seamus came running. Oh, what is it, Paddy? What's the matter? Excuse my Irish accent if it's terrible. Um, Your pig's broken into my yard and now it's feeding right next to my pig and I can't tell which one is which. What are we going to do? And he said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, Uh, Paddy, I really am, but I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll take this pig and I'll cut off its tail, okay? And then my pig will be the one that's missing a tail and your your pig will be the one that has a tail. And he said, oh, Paddy, uh, you're a genius. Let's do that. So he did that. He took the pig, cut off its tail, he fixed the fence and everyone was happy. But the next morning... Seamus! Bleeding heck, Paddy, what's the matter? And Paddy comes running. Your moronic pig has broken into my yard again. And you know what he's done? He's bitten the tail off my pig, and now I can't tell which one's which again. And he says, oh, Seamus, I'm so sorry. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take this pig, and I'll cut off one of his ears. 
and then my pig will be the one with no ear, no tail, and your pig will be the one with two ears and no tail. Oh, Patty, you're a genius. <laughs> so Patty takes the pig back, fixes the fence, all good. But the next morning, Seamus! Heaven's above, Patty. I think they heard you down in that convict settlement on the other side of the world. What's the matter? And he said, your unfathomably stupid pig has broken into my yard again. But not only that, he's gone and bitten one of the ears off my pig. He's like, oh no, Seamus, I'm so sorry. What are we going to do? Patty said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take this one. I'll cut his other ear off. <laughs> you get it, right? So my pig will be the one with no ears and no tail. You'll be the pig with one ear and no tail. Okay, Patty, you're a genius. <laughs> so away he went, and he fixed the fence. The next morning... <laughs> This is the last one, I promise. <laughs> Seamus! Bleeding heck, Patty, what's the matter? You're a good-for-nothing but pork and bacon pig has broken into my yard again and he's bitten the other ear off my pig and now I can't tell which one's which. What are we going to do? So Patty said, Ah, oh, Seamus, I'll tell you what. I'll take this black one and you take the white one. <laughs> and that's the story. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Patty, you're a genius. <laughs> now, the second story, stark contrast. Are you ready? Stark contrast. Both stories relevant to the passage today, believe it or not. At 11.05 p.m. on the 12th of October in 2002 in Bali, Indonesia, a suicide bomber entered um, a pub in Kuta and he set off the pack and he killed a bunch of people. 20 seconds later, a significantly more powerful car bomb parked outside the Sari Club, a van, actually, full of explosives, uh, was detonated and destroying half the club, left a one-metre crater in the ground, and 202 people were killed that night. 88 of them were Australians. Now, a friend of mine was there in the Sari Club uh, with his mates on holidays. Loved to surf, surfs in Bali all the time. He was in an underground part of the club and he said the, there was no way out. The explosion destroyed the way out uh, of the club. There was broken glass and twisted metal of fire uh, all around, people screaming. It was your worst nightmare scene. Now, he and his friends managed to find this way out of the underground part of the club, somewhat through the fire. They found the way out. They managed to get out, him and all his friends, and then... Because they'd found the way out, they went back in. And he and his friends, five of them, rescued uh, 14 people uh, before it became impossible uh, to go back in there and rescue any more. And tragically, one woman died in my friend's arms that night. Uh, they're heroes, and that night changed them forever. Uh, my friend still receives um, psychology for his anxiety uh, because of that night, the post-traumatic stress and one of his friends received severe burns to his arms and his face. And he's never been the same. He went and lived out bush. And um, he's still alive, but he's really messed up. Now, I told you the stories will clash. And I've got two questions for you to think about. Why did my friend go back into a burning building to try and rescue people? Why did he do that? Perfect strangers. He and his friends are out. All the people he knew were safe. But he went back in to try and rescue strangers. Why did all, he and all his friends do that? That's a crazy question to ask anyone who has a heart, isn't it? <laughs> of course he went back in. 
Of course he did whatever he could uh, to try and rescue people. 200 people died, if not for the heroics of many, many more uh, would have died, and praise God, uh, they saved some. Now, at that moment, there was a crystal clarity for he and his friends as they looked at other people. There was people outside who were safe and there was people inside who could die and there was no other types of people in the world, if you know what I'm saying, at that moment. There was people safe and people about to die and that's it. It didn't matter where they were from. There was 20-odd different nations represented in the club that night. It didn't matter where they were from. It didn't matter how old they were. It didn't matter what they were like or how much money they had or what job they had or what they thought of my friend. At that moment, there were safe people and dying people and that's it. And so they tried, the safe people tried to help the dying people, and that's it. There was a crystal clarity as they looked at the two kinds of people. And they did what anyone with a heart would do. They did everything they could to save as many as they could. Question number two. Do we see, do you see people of the world with the same clarity as my friend did at that moment on that night? Or are we being ignorant and stupid like Paddy and Seamus? We see all the details of people, we think about all the details of people and we can't see in front of our face. There's actually two types of people. It is very black and white. There's actually two types of people in the world. There's the safe people and there's the people about to die. A horrible, horrible death. And are we doing all we can to try and save them, humanly speaking, under God? Are we doing all we can? Now, it's unorthodox for the preacher to apply the passage before he starts looking at the passage, but I just want you to have that thought in mind. Are we doing all we can, humanly speaking? Maybe we are. Maybe we're not. Are we doing all we can, humanly speaking, to help people avoid this that's coming in chapter 16? That's the question I want you to have rolling around your mind as we look at this passage this morning. Please keep your Bibles open and look with me at verse 1. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, poured it out, all of it. Ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, it turned into blood like that of a dead person and everything in everything in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. God's wrath is going to be poured out in full on the earth, in particular on those who have the mark of Satan, who worship his image. That is, every single person who has not put their trust in Jesus will have the wrath of God poured out on them. No one will escape Notice that every single water source in the world turns to blood, killing everything that lives. No living thing can survive without water. No, no birds, no land animals, no sea creatures can survive without water. It all turns to blood and all creatures perish as a result. It's no longer the one-third of the people that we heard earlier in Revelation that the Satan was allowed to attack no longer can you destroy this, but not that. It's total annihilation now. And the holy ones of God, the angels declare, and the altar declares in verses 5 to 7, 
Fair enough. This is right. This is proper. So look at verse 5. I heard in the angel, sorry, then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you're just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you've so judged, for they have shed the blood of your people and your prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God is right and just in his judgment. Not only have they rebelled against him, but they've sought to kill his people in their tens of thousands over the centuries, and that is a fact. Thousands of Christians have been martyred and are still being martyred today, most kind of vehemently in the last hundred years, which we've discussed at length over the course of the series. The altar concurs that God's actions are right. The altar speaks for the first time. The altar represents both God's presence, but also his people. Remember, the souls of the martyrs are under the altar. God and his people sit together in judgment over the world. Now, verse 8 and 9 are disturbing, if you're not disturbed already. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared with the, by the intense heat. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent still and glorify him. Studying fire engineering taught me that in a room with a typical amount of furniture in it that's completely on fire, the temperature in the room is 1,000 degrees C. I was doing some research on the temperature of the sun. It's 5,500 degrees Celsius on the surface of the sun and 15 million degrees in its core. The heat of the sun scorches these people and they don't fall on their knees and repent. They shake their fist and refuse to repent. That's the really scary bit. So hardened are some people's hearts against God that even under these circumstances, we saw it in the Exodus, with the plagues, even... Under these accidents, under these circumstances, some people knowingly choose death rather than repent of their sin. Second point, if you're following along on your outlines, God's wrath, praise God, his wrath is finally poured out on Satan and his machine. Satan's time will come to an end. That has been promised by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The fifth bowl is truly an awe-inspiring vision. The throne of the beast is in some ways Satan's masterstroke. As we've talked about before, the throne of the beast are kingdoms that rule in this world, evil regimes that rule in this world, and not only that, the people prescribe to and sign up to and serve, and in doing so, serve Satan as they serve his beast in our world. Satan has invaded the whole structure of our society, the structure that was first planned by God to worship him, 
such that many worship the Satan instead. He's perverted the world to his own ends. The world in Revelation is the, the, the world turned against God. The people of the world turned against God. That's what we have. It's the satanic counterpart to the church, the church and the world. It's the kingdom of the beast as opposed to the kingdom of Christ. And upon this mighty triumph of the dragon upon which the beast sits enthroned, upon this kingdom of the Satan, the fifth bowl of God's wrath is poured out in full. Satan's kingdom claims to provide a viable alternative to Christ and his church, but God is grimly vindicated when this godless society which rose so proudly against him and against his people and his church is shown to be unequal to God and unequal to the task of ruling this world. Satan's godless kingdom, represented by evil regimes of the earth, past and present, will receive the full force of God's wrath and it will not stand. But still, those who bear the mark of the beast will not turn to God. They will suffer by no means in silence and they will throw the blame on God, not themselves. But those who are sealed as the Lamb's followers will know what's happening. You will know what's happening. We will know what's happening. And when Satan's machine begins to break down under the wrath of God, for one last time, brothers and sisters, we will pray, hallowed God be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We will pray for the last time as God's will is done on earth and his kingdom is ushered in. And this is when the great war comes in chapter 12, sorry, verse 12, chapter 16. When the sixth bowl is poured out, the river Euphrates dries up to make way for an army and from the mouth of Satan and his beast and his false, false prophet comes these demonic frogs uh, out of their mouths. I'm not sure what it means. I read that in the ancient world, frogs are one of the lowest creatures um, of all God's creatures. They're slimy. They're good for nothing. They make an irritating croak. They, I mean, if you think about it, they really are pretty useless creatures. They don't really do a whole lot except croak and get covered in slime. Um, I find them kind of cute, but they are kind of useless. And this is the Satan, slimy, irritating, good for nothing, but making noise. And so the great battle is joined as the armies of Satan march on the armies of God. And look who shows up in verse 15. Verse 15. Look, I come like a thief. And blessed are those who stay awake and keep their clothes on, so they may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. God's Christ comes, as prophesied in 1 Thessalonians 5, to defeat Satan and to, to have victory on the day known as Armageddon, the end of the world as we know it. Revelation 16 is a picture of the end of the world as we know it. These last few verses are pretty self-explanatory, but I want to highlight one thing. From verse 17. Look at verse 17. 
The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. So just in case we're not quite sure on the identity of the one who comes like a thief, here it is made loud and clear. Jesus' words that he said on the cross just before he died are are quoted here in chapter 16 of Revelation. It is done. It is finished with Jesus' final words. When he died, it is finished, sin is paid for, it is finished, Satan is ultimately defeated. Jesus' death on the cross marked the inevitable end of Satan's rule and Armageddon marks the final end. It is the day that Satan and sin and death die and it will be tremendous and terrifying. The day will be marked with blinding lightning, pealing thunder, the likes of which we've never heard, earthquakes never before recorded on a Richter scale, the likes of which we've never seen nor felt. As Satan's rule crumbles before his demonic eyes and the Christ, who is Jesus, rises to rule as he deserves to rule and as he always was destined to rule, he will rise to be honoured and to be glorified as was promised he would. Three implications to finish. Firstly, Paddy and Seamus make a good point. I think most days we spend completely focused on people's tails and ears and we miss what is right in front of our face. That they're either a brother and sister in Christ or they're not yet and they're in danger. Terrible danger. Destined for the wrath of the Christ. And in the end, nothing else about us will matter. But whether we're in Christ or not. So friends, we need to make that our focus with people. Are they saved or not? They need to hear the gospel. Starting with our own families. Parents, your number one priority for your children is that they're in Christ, following him wholeheartedly. It's been such a privilege to watch our kids grow up into youth who are now practically taking over our church. It's fantastic, running Kids Club and helping out, running our children's programs on Sunday mornings and etc., etc. Um, Ray just spent the week at crew camp and it was fantastic and half the leaders, not about half, but I'm going to exaggerate, half the leaders were from our church, which was fantastic. In the end, that's all that will matter. Have we really grasped, have you really grasped that career, wealth, status, education, etc., 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 won't matter in the end? God won't ask you what generation smartphone you're carrying. He won't care. He won't care where you worked. He won't care how many letters you got after your name. He won't care how many overseas trips you took and how many pins you've got on your world map of where you've been. And He won't care if you won a gold medal. He'll want to know if you're with his son or against him. That's it. And this leads me to my second point. Praise God for his son. Praise God for Jesus. 
I skipped over a really important verse on purpose. Look again with me at verse 15. Look, I come like a thief, and blessed are those who stay awake, keep their clothes on, so they may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. When the Bible talks about staying awake, it's talking about wisdom, being wise, being alert, being ready. When it talks about being clothed, it's talking about protection, it's talking about salvation. Could you please turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61? Isaiah chapter 61. Please open it up. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably hit Psalms. It's just after that a little bit. Isaiah 61. I want to read verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself, adorns herself with her jewels. Through faith in Jesus, friends, you are clothed in salvation. You are arrayed in righteousness that comes only from Christ. Praise God for Jesus who died in our place, who suffered the death we don't need to suffer. Praise God for Jesus who traded his sinlessness for my and your sinfulness. Praise God for Jesus who traded glory and honour for shame and disgrace that we might have his glory and honour. Praise God for Jesus who traded life with the Father in heaven for death amongst murderous sinners like me. Praise God for Jesus when you wake in the morning, after you eat, when you work, when you play, when you rest. Praise God. You are saved. You are righteous. You will avoid the wrath of God. Praise God for Jesus. Because of him, you now have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You're not actually like blind Patty and Seamus. You are expecting Armageddon to come and to come soon. You realise that everyone needs to hear the gospel. And if they haven't, it's desperate, it's urgent. They need to hear the gospel. And in term three... You don't want to miss one week of growth groups, friends. And if you're not in one, get in one. Just turn up. Knock on the door. I'm here. Come in. We're talking about evangelism. We're talking about how to talk to people about Jesus. It can be hard. It can be awkward. It can be difficult. It can be embarrassing. I know. I find it hard to start up a conversation about Jesus with someone. Get it going. It's amazing the amount of times that I have mustered up the courage to start up a conversation. Away it went. And I kind of thought, wow, isn't this amazing? We're going to be focusing on evangelism. Why is it hard? Why is it scary? How can I, how can you be you in evangelism? There's not this kind of one sort of perfect evangelist type person that we need to be like. You need to be you, but you need to do the work of evangelism as you. So we're going to think about that in growth groups the whole term so that we can work out together how to better Share the gospel with people who are destined for God's wrath. Whoever you are, whatever you're like, whatever your personality is like, 
You can save people. Point three is insert loved one's name here. Imagine you were in Bali on that devastating night 17 years ago. Imagine you're headed for the Sari Club at about 11 o'clock and you walk past the van and you saw the explosives inside and you saw a 30-minute timer like they see on the movies, which isn't reality. But you saw the 30-minute timer. You figured out what was about to happen. What would you do next? Would you walk away and save yourself? Well, of course not. What if you had a group of friends or maybe family members already inside? What would you do next? It's a dumb question, isn't it? I hope it's a dumb question. It's a really dumb question. The answer is bleedingly obvious. You'd run into the club. You'd scream and shout and warn people, find the manager, find anyone who can turn the music off and make an announcement. And You might run to your friends and family first, and that would be very normal and natural and human, I would think, and tell them. You would do everything in your power to warn everyone in that club to get out, right? Of course you would. For my friend, he didn't have that luxury. It was after the event that he tried to help and tried to save as many as he could. No one will survive this event of Revelation 16 unless they're in Christ. 202 people died that night. A whole bunch did survive, praise God. A whole bunch more because of the heroics of some. No one will survive this one. We have the luxury of the warning. We know, you know what's about to happen. Now, friends, my goal today was to help you feel the reality of what is to come. And my goal was not to drive you to guilt or despair. So if you're there, let's get you out of there. I'm doing my best with my mate at tennis. His name's Simon. Big fan of Simon. Um, I've had a couple of good conversations with him about the gospel. He came to the origin night. I think maybe we're at the point now where I can ask if he wants to read the Bible. I don't know what he'll say. I'm doing my best. It's clunky. It's awkward. I had another conversation at tennis with another guy whose life's terrible. And I think I could have held up. I was reflecting. I was thinking I could have held up the hope of God and Jesus a bit more than I did. And I dropped the ball. I dropped the ball on that one. I need to do better. I certainly need to pray more urgently. The reality is, friends, that our God is all-powerful and all in control. He can save. He has the power to save. So we need to look to him. And we need to pray to him. Don't despair. Turn to God. Get on your knees for your friends and your family. Who face this wrath and pray desperately, urgently. I need to pray a lot more for my neighbours, for my family members who don't trust in Jesus, that God will save them and God might use me and give me wisdom to know what to say so that I can save them.
Our God's powerful and he will save who he wants to save with or without us. But seriously, brothers and sisters, if the love of Christ is in us, we must desperately be thankful for him because we're saved and desperately pray and do all we can for our friends and our family and our neighbours, especially those we know and love. Do all we can, humanly speaking, to save them. It's what you naturally do when you see someone in peril. Term three in growth groups, let's get together, let's talk about it, let's work it out, let's pray together, let's get started. Please join me in prayer. Loving Father and Almighty God, thank you so much for your grace to us through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your humility and mercy and kindness and grace to us in coming to earth, suffering ridicule and shame when you deserved only glory and honour, suffering a humiliating and excruciating death. Father, thank you that Satan's days are numbered, that though he rules and has many small winds across our world and across our city, in the end, your wrath will be poured out on him and his kingdom in full. But Lord, we know that your wrath is also reserved for the unrepentant. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts this morning to come to repentance and faith if we've not yet done so. Holy Spirit, work in the saints in this room to desperately pray for the lost, to honestly, genuinely do everything in our power to share their infinitely good news that their friends and family, loved ones, neighbours, they need not face the wrath of Christ, but instead be clothed in his righteousness for all eternity with the rest of us. Father, thank you for the many ways in which our church has reached the lost and is reaching the lost and is seeking to share the gospel. Continue to grow our hearts that we might do even more than we are doing now. Help us, Father, we pray, for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.